1: And welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Miranda Corcoran, and today I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Julia Miele-Rodas, author of Autistic Disturbances, Theorizing Autism Poetics from the DSM to Robinson Crusoe, published this year by the University of Michigan Press in Ann Arbor. So hello, Julia. Welcome to the show. We're absolutely delighted to have you here. Hi, Miranda. I'm
0: so, so pleased that you're having me. Thank you.
1: So your book is a really, really fascinating project. And before we dive into discussing the text itself, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background information on yourself. Where did you study? What's your area of specialization? And in particular, what drew you to this fascinating project?
0: Uh, Thanks so much for asking. Um, I actually teach at the City University of New York. We call that CUNY. Um, And I both got my PhD in the English program here, and I am a tenured professor at one of the CUNY community colleges, Bronx Community College. So, an important part of my interest in the topic, not my only interest, but an important part of my interest in the topic, um, is this very democratic sense of education of reading and writing, and um, I'm e- while I'm doing my scholarship in disability studies, I am conscious the whole time that what i'm writing about and what i'm thinking about has to be accessible to um a very everyday kind of urban co- com, you know community college student um that's part of what has interested me in the project and drawn me to the project um But I guess there are a couple of other angles also. Um, I've been working on disability studies for a couple of decades now, um, and I was drawn into that initially from my own background and experience um, growing up with a disabled sibling. Um, But an interest in autism particularly developed because... Um, Like many academics, I've always felt um, a little bit outside the mainstream. And when I started reading about autism and thinking about autism, uh, although I myself am not autistic, I felt myself very drawn to and connected with this way of being in the world.
1: Absolutely. I think to a lot of academics, actually, and a lot of scholarly people, some of the characteristic forms of autistic expression do ring true or do seem quite familiar, even if they aren't coming from an autistic perspective themselves.
0: Um, yeah, very much so. I think, you know, the, the, the main point of the book, you know, sort of the thrust of the whole thing is that we... We as a culture uh, tend to devalue autistic ways of being and autistic ways of expressing ourselves um, when those are recognized clinically, but sort of in the more mainstream arenas of the culture. And the book talks about literature, but uh, you know, just talking about professorial life, the work that college professors do. This intensely focused. Um, often repetitive or recursive kind of thinking and writing and verbalizing, um, that has a very autistic kind of tenor to it. And it is highly valued in our culture as long as it's not labeled as something that is explicitly clinically autistic. And, you know, the point of the book is to kind of question sorry I'm, I'm losing a word here for a moment is, is to is to question the difference between those two values I guess
1: okay now that makes perfect sense actually this idea that certain behavioral attributes certain ways of expressing oneself or being in the world they're considered valuable they're considered uh, important they're considered intellectual as long as they don't have that diagnostic label uh, associated with them and then all of a sudden, once they they acquire that kind of label, once they're labeled in that manner, they suddenly they suddenly become devalued. They aren't seen as a legitimate mode of expression. So that makes absolute sense. Um, I was wondering as well, in terms of um, as you were saying that a lot of your interest in this topic comes from your experience of teaching in the community college environment, which you know is a very diverse environment. Do you also find that working on this project has informed how you teach as well?
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad that you sort of took took us back there and uh, have given me a chance to address that even one more time. Um, <clears throat> For most of my students at Bronx Community College um, who are people of color or immigrants or coming from immigrant families, they're the first in their families to be going to college, and they're coming from environments where their ways of speaking and their ways of using language are really eclectic, so they're not part of this tiny, tiny linguistic minority of approved academic speaking and writing. And my experience is that um, many professors, particularly English professors, um, have relatively rigid notions of what's correct and not correct when it comes to language. And as a as a person coming from, uh, a background where that form of expression, this sort of academic approved academic form of expression, um, is part of my, part of my born culture. Um, initially when I started out doing that kind of teaching, you know, I was also approaching, my, my own students as though there was something wrong with the way they use language, as though as language users, they, they were sort of broken. And teaching at a community college, learning from my colleagues and learning from my students, um, it's been so important to me to see that everyone's natural expression is valid and valuable. And Doing this long-term project on autistic voice and expression has, I hope, made me a much better partner in the classroom, that I am a better listener, that when I notice my own um, impatience or frustration with some failure of communication between the teacher and the student, that you know, I'm kind of revisiting that interaction and seeing, oh, yeah, that's not really a failure on the part of the student. This is a different way of speaking or a different form of expression. And I do have an obligation uh, as a teacher to try to guide the student toward this very narrow approved framework for uh, literary expression. But at the same time, you know, I'm recognizing the value of the way that person talks or the way that person expresses him or herself um, to a much greater degree than I did before I I really dove into this project.
1: Definitely, and I think academics, uh, particularly as you said, in the field of English or literary studies, often have a very, I suppose, monolithic conception of how the English language should be used and what constitutes legitimate expression and legitimate ways of speaking or writing. And of course, the problem with that kind of monolithic idea of language or expression is that it often tends to be quite exclusionary. You know, it's a very uh, middle to upper class, white um style of speech. So it certainly is quite exclusionary. And that is something that I think, you know, it's, it's a very valuable thing to bear in mind when you're teaching and when you're interacting with a diverse range of students. Because, well, as you said, you do feel a responsibility to guide them towards a certain standard of English. At the same time, you don't want to denigrate other forms of expression that may be just as valuable. Mm. Um. And and I think you know we
0: we have we haven't talked very much about the specifics of the book yet. But you know this is also one of the um, I, I think one of the most important observations of the book that our our values around the way language is used are very much culturally informed. So one of the interesting things that's happening in the clinical diagnosis of autism and the invention of autism as a, um, clinical category is that the doctors who, um, who first notice and, um, set the parameters for what autism is, and that would be, uh, Leo Kanner and Hans Asperger you know, these guys, Kanner in particular, are adopting terms from literary study to establish um, uh, aspects of clinical deficit. So Kanner, for instance, talks about metaphorical language as though that's a bad thing, and uh, one of the things that I talk about in autistic disturbances is the fact that we need to reclaim those categories and say, yes, you know, you know what, autism does have, autism is prone to speak in this metaphorical way, but why on earth are we valuing that that's
1: that's a prized
0: form of literary expression.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do I do find that particularly fascinating this idea that so many characteristics of autistic expression particularly this idea of metaphorical language for example are considered in a clinical sense to be deficiencies when actually as you say they're actually quite prized modes of expression within say the literary community there seems to be a sort of a paradigm that views it, views these modes of expression as somehow as somehow lacking or inherently negative when in actuality they really have something very profound to offer uh, yeah when i i just want to
0: take it back to Teaching one more time, I hope that that's not too strange. Um, there I had sort of this breakthrough moment when I was listening to a colleague give a lecture on um, listening to second language or foreign language speakers of English, and you know apparently, there are many studies that point to the fact that people are less likely to understand the same foreign accent when the speaker is a person of color than when the person is uh, white-appearing. So when... Uh, the listener sees that their interlocutor is a person of color, they are already expecting not to understand. And that expectation of bafflement um, or obscurity is a huge contributing factor to the failure in the exchange. Um, and, you know, I think that, there's a very similar kind of dynamic at work when uh, when people are listening to those they know to be autistic. So you know the sort of obscurity that comes, for instance, with being a college professor is ordinarily thought of as being kind of clever, and if someone doesn't understand what a um Mainstream dominant culture person is saying, um, there's a feeling of regret and inferiority on the part of the listener who feels that they've failed in the exchange. But if the identity of the person being listened to is in any way sort of subordinated in the culture, if they're a person who's not valued in the culture, um, it 's socially acceptable to kind of throw up your hands and say oh, i don 't understand what the person is saying, and this is one of the one of the things that is a huge problem in um, the way autistic expression gets valued that you know when listeners are knowing that the other person is autistic, they are already approaching um, every verbal exchange with this kind of baseline idea that they're going to be incomprehensible. Um, and I, I talk, for instance, about the use of the puzzle piece as a uh, you know, universal sign for autism. And you know there are lots of autistic scholars who have pointed out this problem that when we identify autism with puzzles and puzzlement and the idea that these, you know, that autistic people are, uh, incomprehensible or inexplicable or mysterious, then the, then our listening actually shifts. We don't, we don't hear what's being said, or we don't care, don't pay attention, um, in the same way that we would if, if we felt the person to be, um, non-autistic.
1: Absolutely, and I think actually this idea of the sign for autism being a puzzle piece—it sort of ties into this idea and this very common discourse that exists, even still, in popular culture, that rather than being fully fledged human beings, autistic individuals are simply a puzzle to be solved. So that's definitely something that's that's very very problematic within our culture and within, I suppose, the different ways in which we approach autism. Um, so. I wanted to move on to approach the, the broader project of your book and I think of your research in a whole, because you note that really the aim of the book, and I guess this ties into some of what we've already been discussing, is to open literary, literary texts up to the possibilities of autism, which I think is a, a really wonderful turn of phrase. But can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by opening texts up to the possibilities of autism and what this means for the project as a whole?
0: Um, well, the idea is that, and I think we're actually indebted to autistic ways of thinking and autistic forms of expression, especially um, for some of the, um, for many literary texts that we we really value in our culture. Um, so... I talk about a number of texts, and I I span you know about three hundred years. It's a it's quite a promiscuous project in a way.
1: See, I I would have said comprehensive. (laughs) Well, you know, to me, this is one of the
0: one of the deficits of the project that you know I've I've sort of grazed around um, sampling from texts that are important to me for personal reasons. Um, But, you know, I have a very idiosyncratic kind of taste. And I think that the things that I have recognized, for instance, in um, Andy Warhol's uh, memoir, or in Robinson Crusoe, uh, or in Frankenstein, that You know, these are these are things that I've noticed because I've been reading those texts over and over again, and you know, I think that the kinds of the kind of autistic fingerprint that I find in those texts uh, probably is ubiquitous, and that other scholars with interests in other kinds of texts are going to come along and say, "Oh, but how about this text? And how about this text? And what about this in music, or you know?" other kinds of cultural texts. And, um, you know, I, I, am excited to talk about particular texts, but I, I really am hoping that other people are going to flesh this out a little bit more because I, I know that my own, um, my own choices are, are really idiosyncratic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think with a project like this and with a project that is essentially trying to posit a new mode of reading literary texts, I suppose you have to be selective or even idiosyncratic to a certain degree in order to simply vocalize your point. And then hopefully, as you said, it's something that will be elaborated later on by other scholars, perhaps working on different kinds of cultural artifacts. So one thing I did want to note, and I think this is obviously quite important to your project, is that generally the texts, or actually completely uh, the texts that you choose, are generally works authored by neurotypical authors, so you don't actually analyze any works by self-identified autistic authors. And I was wondering, is there a reason for that? Yeah, I
0: mean, I'm I'm actually pretty careful not to weigh in on the diagnostic status of the authors that I'm writing about because we have no way of knowing if they're autistic. I mean autism is a clinical category that comes into being in the 1940s but presumably there there are people who will have occupied that um that experience uh before the the diagnostic the you know the, the that moment in diagnostic history. And I'm sort of saying, you know, it doesn't matter very much whether, you know, Andy Warhol or Mary Shelley or Georges Perec were autistic. Uh, What matters is the language that's being used. And I particularly don't uh, look at uh, texts authored by you know self-identified or you know clinically diagnosed autistic people uh because the great um mass of those of those texts um exist as a way of giving sort of mainstream culture a A take on the autistic person's life um, and the literary analysis that I'm doing for the the books that I take up is you know very much to go into the the language of the text in a detailed way, you know looking at the the narrative breakdown at the rhetoric of the text at the semiotics of the text. And to say, look, you know, here's, you know, here's a bit of, um, here's a bit of autistic expression here. And I, I think that it is, I think that it's a wrong way to treat, uh, texts, Written by autistic people that are not intended for that purpose, so I actually call it uh, autism autopsy um, and you know there's a there's a bit in the book where you know I say that looking for those clinically distinctive features um, in books that are intended to to talk about the content of an autistic person's life, uh, is a kind of, um, way of pathologizing autistic texts, which I felt very uncomfortable doing. Um, now Ralph Savarese has written a little appreciation of autistic disturbances and I'm so appreciative. Um, he he had lovely things to say about the book, but he did raise this as a criticism. And, you know, he, he heard my point about not wanting to, you know, autopsy or pathologize texts written explicitly by autistic people. Um, But he says, you know, there are literary texts by autistic people that you could have done this with. And, you know, I think in a perfect version of the project, I probably would have taken him up on that. Uh, the main thing, though, Miranda, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I've sort of gone off on a tangent, uh, is that I wanted our attention to be focused on – sorry, I'm going to try that again – Sorry about the dinging. Um, I wanted our, the main thing is that I wanted our attention, the attention of the reader to be focused on these mainstream texts where there's no question of the value um, and to say, oh, look, you know, when we find autism here, this is something that we think is exciting and creative and uh, inventive and beautiful Um, So I I really wanted that to be... That's actually a really very interesting point, and I think a very valid point, because obviously
1: the aim of this project isn't to analyze representations of the autistic experience, but again, it's to reclaim the value of autistic modes of expression by, as you said, taking these works that we already value as a culture and identifying these elements of autistic expression within them and how within these canonical for the most part cultural texts autistic modes of expression are considered creative and beautiful and poetic so it's it's definitely I think um very much inherent to the project the works you're looking at aren't by self-identified autistic authors. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask you about was the question of intentionality, because you talk quite a bit about the idea of language and intentionality. And in, particularly, in particular, you look at Melanie Jurgau's assertion that the question of autistic intentionality is always bound up with notions of dehumanization. Could you say a bit about this idea of intentionality and how, does, how this comes into notions of autistic expression. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I think that Melanie is just a genius. I love her work, and uh, her work is a huge inspiration for me in this project. And perhaps you'll invite her on another time to to do a podcast with you. Um, <clears throat> uh, so the this idea of intentionality is is kind of used as um a tool to kind of segregate out I, I think it's used as a tool to segregate out autistic people from um owning their own language and expression. So as human beings obviously we have a very um Sorry, that's my mother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, As human beings, we have um, a very uneven uh, kind of intentionality in everything that we do, including or especially our use of language. You know, the non-autistic people are, you know, constantly sort of groping around to try to figure out the right way of saying something or getting it wrong. I didn't mean that. Um, And the idea that the more idiosyncratic or eccentric uses of language that are part of the Autistic way of speaking or the autistic language fingerprint that you know because those things might be more of a stretch that they're kind of outside the realm of intention, whereas for non-autistic speakers, our language language is inside the realm of um, of intention. That's just patently false, Um, and we can never quite uh, be secure in with anyone's language, regardless of who's speaking, you know, what's fully intentional and what's not. Uh, so the idea of using that as a litmus test for how we're supposed to listen or whether language has value, um, you know, I think, is justifying a kind of bias that, that we want to challenge in ourselves.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think actually this might lead on to another question that I have um, about the early sections of your book. You talk about this idea that autistic expression provides an opportunity for queering language. What exactly does that mean, to queer language? And how do you engage with this idea in the book?
0: Mm. Uh, again, you know my my hats off to Professor Yurgo. She, you know, this is really her idea that I've adopted. Um, but you know, if we if we kind of go back to talking again about my teaching and my expectations of my students, um, you know. This idea that there is a right way of speaking or a right way of using language, you know, that that kind of goes along with some straight laced English professor meme um, about everything being, you know, grammatically correct or using standard English, Um, and the I, you know, that idea kind of fits with. this clinical notion of language, which you know, brings us back into uh, this, or brings us back to this idea that the clinical and the cultural are not really separated. You know, uh, Kanner, for instance, talks about language that's not communicative, um, as though language has this single function of. Communication which which it doesn't i mean i use I use the word expression for a reason we use language all kinds of ways um, that are not necessarily um, about about you know function it's not transactional it's not about doing business with one another. It is about giving voice to who we are. Um, And I think that when Professor Yurgo talks about queering language, she is opening up this idea that all of these unusual ways of using language that are uh, not explicitly transactional or that somehow flout the dominant rules for the way we're supposed to use language um, that that defy rules of politeness or that um, defy uh, ideas of teleology you know that a conversation is supposed to go somewhere in particular. Um, that it can't just be dithering around, or that it can't fold back on itself. Um, those are all uh, queerings. Try that again. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those uh, those unusual ways of using language, or or all of those sort of non rigidly mainstream approved ways of using language um <clears throat> are are forms of uh are, are what what professor yrgo would call a queering of the language it's it's a it's an opening up of the language beyond the beyond the boundaries of correctness beyond the uh the established disciplines for using language for transactions or um within certain approved forms of expression like you know the college essay for instance um uh you know i i wanted a chance at some point i guess to talk about um, the, the different features that I, I pull out as kind of identifying that autistic fingerprint, because I think that those are, um, those are helpful for thinking about how language gets autistically queered.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that actually leads me on a little bit to my next question. So you might be able to elaborate on this point, as well as some other features of autistic expression that you note. But I find this idea of opening up language to uses other than direct, as you say, transactional communication is really interesting. And one of the ways in which I think this occurs in autistic expression is through cataloging and list making, which I think is something that generally is demonized as being uncreative or being somewhat soulless or simply about accumulating items and objects. But in fact, I think there's something, um, as you say in the book, of a creative element to this process of list making. So how do these features of autistic expression, such as list making or repetition, how do they, I suppose, exemplify this idea of querying language or opening it up to other uses? Um, you know, it's
0: it's interesting. When I was reading through all of this clinical literature, to sort of try to figure out what the consensus is about um, the characteristics of autistic language. Um, the, the pieces that I found uh, people were in agreement about, and, and by people I include clinicians and autism theorists and autistic people including autism theorists, you know, everybody who was writing about autistic language um, shared many ideas about what characterizes autistic language. And one of the key things, I would say the number one feature of autistic language according to clinicians, according to autistic people, um, according to autism family people who write about uh, autistic language, is this propensity for list-making or cataloging or taxonomical writing. And it is a form of expression that is really devalued in the culture so that it's, you know, it's regarded as, as rigid and as mechanistic. And, you know, in the, in the clinical writing, when doctors, um, and other clinicians are writing about this kind of list making propensity, um, they're, they're talking about how it's uncreative. They're talking about how it's non-communicative, um, There, you know, a lot of people write about how this is um, a form of of comfort seeking for autistic people. So, you know, it it rests on this idea of autistic brokenness, and you know. that autistic people need this kind of list-making or repetition uh, to solace themselves. Uh, Even in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, one of the examples that's given in the definition of autism is that the person may uh, repeat themselves, they call this echolalia, saying something like, cheese, 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 to comfort themselves um and i you know i th- see this kind of devaluing of list making uh also being a very important aspect of um literary literary culture that literary culture also devalues list making so that when we find um catalogers like Kusoban in um, in George Eliot's Middle March, you know this is sort of this dried up old twig of a guy, and this is this dead, meaningless thing that he's doing is making lists um but I'm trying to really reclaim that in the book, and i i I point to the idea of the list as this incredibly flexible form so that you know quite a quite the contrary of it being rigid you know a list is something that you can always add to that gets moved around that is you know infinitely fluid and flexible um and Umberto Eco actually talks about um lists as suggesting a kind of infinitude that even when one has a, uh, a finite collection uh, that, that, um, that kind of list or catalog form, that inventory is always gesturing toward um, an infinite excess beyond the frame. So, you know rather than it being this kind of dried up useless non-creative rigid form uh i'm inviting the reader to see list making in this other way and you know hopefully to go from looking at literary lists like um uh David Anton's poem that I talk about or Raymond Carver's poem uh or Georges Perec's uh inventory poem and you know bringing that knowledge of the creativity and flexibility of the list back to their their uh interactions with real life autistic people, you know, when someone is making lists, or when someone is um, in list mode, that is not necessarily a sign of, you know, rigidity or a sign of, you know, intellectual or creative limits. There's all kinds of interesting creative stuff that's going on with list making, I think.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really fascinating way to read the act of making lists as a sort of creative process. And returning somewhat to this idea of taxonomy and listing, I think one of the most intriguing sections of the book is in chapter three, where you undertake this analysis, I suppose, of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the text that's traditionally used to diagnose Um, disorders such as autism. However, you actually note that the manual itself can be read as a sort of autistic text par excellence. Why is this the case and what can you tell us about the process of diagnosis if we read it as, I suppose, an autistic text, if we read the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as an autistic text? Um, I, I I think I thought I was being very
0: clever and funny by taking the manual that gets used to diagnose autism and getting it to point, point back at itself. Um, the, the manual like many other, um, manuals, you know, and guidebooks and, uh, reference books of this form is set up, uh, according to a kind of formula and it has to you know it's for practical purposes it has to be set up that way Um, that there are uh, explicit categories that get reused from diagnostic category to diagnostic category that all of the categories themselves are numbered that bits of narrative are um, fit into these it you know fit into this kind of component structure so the whole book is really just this giant list um and you know part of the joke of course is that while doctors are fully vested in composing a book like this that you know they've they're they're kind of not paying attention to the fact that the autistic category that they're describing uses the same kinds of techniques so they're you know they're not valuable when autistic people do them or they're they're pathological when autistic people do them but when when the book is composed that uh you know that that's just for practical purposes. Um at the same time, you know, I don't want to I don't want to devalue the manual. You know, one of the one of the interesting and important things about it is that it has in fact been very flexible. I mean, autism, the definition of autism keeps changing and it keeps, you know, sort of um flexing because there is all of this room in that form to uh to add and to take away and to merge um you know it's when one is it's it's open to a kind of editing and a kind of revision uh that narrative texts uh you know that's much more difficult with narrative texts
1: absolutely and i think one of the things that comes from that kind of reading of the dsm though is also to show the ubiquity of Autistic expression—the fact that you know our tendency to sort of seal it off as a as a disorder, to seal off this um, form of expression as something that is not mainstream and not everyday—is actually quite short-sighted, and that the the characteristic features of autistic expression actually you know, they do manifest in everyday scenarios and they do manifest in literary discourse, but also in scientific or psychological discourse. So I find that's actually a really interesting reading of the DSM. So moving on from that, I did want to talk a bit about chapter four. Um, And in particular, I was really captivated by the manner in which you discuss how traditional discourses about autism often foreground this idea of, Breaking through, which you can't see me now, but I'm I'm doing air quotes for breaking through. Um, but they they foreground this idea of breaking through, that in a way that indicates a discomfort with the idea of the surface not as a wall, but as an aut- uh, but as a space of autistic being and expression. And you look at this very much in terms of the work of Andy Warhol and his memoirs. And he's an artist who deliberately cultivated this sense of surface or nothingness. And I was just wondering how artists like Warhol challenge this idea that the surface is something to be circumvented or something to be broken through in order to access some kind of authentic self beneath it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that question, Miranda. Um, I think that it you know it takes us back also to our little conversation about intentionality. You know, there is this um, you know, kind of cultural illusion that I think we don't often fully engage with, that uh there is something that is us that is kind of interior or, you know, authentic inside. Some other way of being, you know, I interact with the world, but that's not the real me or, you know, I'm reading this book or looking at this work of art or listening to this piece of music, but there's some secret inside it. You know, when I do the analysis or when I, you know, understand the secret or when I really get to know you, I am going to... um you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have gotten to the real thing that's on the inside of. Uh, a kind of shell. And I think that that idea is amplified and exacerbated when we're talking about autism and autistic people. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of uh, autism family memoir, for instance, that uses this metaphor of, you know, breaking through or, you know, getting past some autistic shell. And I think that someone like Warhol, who is often thought to have been autistic, but again, like, I don't, I don't want to stress that point I think that his his way of being in the world uh and his creativity is characteristically autistic whether he is diagnosed or not diagnosed or whether he was diagnosable or not diagnosable you know I want to be at the surface <clears throat> you know looking at his various texts and seeing the way he uh values the membrane or what's perceived as the membrane. You know, he he keeps establishing, you know, part of part of his his text pardon me. Uh, Part of his text is his lived existence. So, you know, the way he promoted himself and the things that he said about himself are are part of the larger text that he produces. And you know both in the the memoir that i do an analysis of the philosophy of Andy Warhol um and in the other uh uh you know, other textual aspects of his life. Um, I talk about the fact that he keeps compelling his audiences, you know, his readers, his viewers, uh, and the, you know, everyday people that he engaged with, he keeps compelling them to come back to this you know, what might be called superficial presentation of self. Um, you know, he, he keeps insisting there's nothing behind the, the, the thing that's frustrating you. Um, you, you know, I, I'm just a machine, you know, he would say, or, uh, you know, he talks about his appearance as being all there is to him. And, um, I think that in terms of the way the culture thinks about autism as, you know, kind of a, a, a shell or the way the culture is prone to thinking about autism as a kind of shell or something to be broken through, uh, to get at the real person, uh, you know, Warhol presents this very interesting challenge because he is, very assertively managing his own identity and his own uh set of expressive texts and he is compelling audiences to interact with that thing that makes people feel so uncomfortable um the the apparent non-responsiveness, um, the, you know, this is, you know, again, Yurgo's idea of autism as a, as a queer category and autistic language in particular as a queer category. Um, there are, uh, unspoken, um, unconscious rules of, how we're supposed to interact with one another, uh, rules around interrupting, rules around uh, making one another feel comfortable. And, you know, it often happens that autism doesn't go along with those, with those rules. And because, you know, particularly the way autism uses language can be very uncomfortable for people who are accustomed to conventional ways of using language. Um, You know, there is this urgent desire to kind of break into the autistic space. And, you know, I love Warhol as kind of an autism advocate in a way who says no this is this is what you have to interact with this is the only thing that is available to you you now need to do the hard work of figuring out how you are going to engage in this particular space you know how are you going to look at this set of objects that I have put before you, or how are you going to, uh, you know, deal with this conversation when I keep bringing us back to the same space? And my suggestion is that's actually a really uh, intellectually and aesthetically productive space to be in. To have to to have to be compelled to the discipline of. Uh, engaging with art or language that doesn't feel comfortable and intuitive.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things about Warhol and about his his written work in particular is how he sort of challenges or subverts this sort of this tendency we have as a culture to sort of, I suppose, mythologize the idea of individual interiority and the idea that within all of us, there's this sort of special hidden core of individuality that needs to be gotten at once you know once we penetrate the surface so it's a, i think that's a really interesting aspect of warhol's character both his public persona and his writing but just to return to warhol himself a little bit i have noticed a sort of tendency on the part of critics and historians to i suppose retroactively diagnose Warhol as autistic. And I was just wondering, what is your position on this idea of fictional or retrospective diagnoses? Do you think this is something that's problematic?
0: Uh, thank you so much for, for asking this question. It is problematic. Um, you know, I I have to be, you know, full, full disclosure, I have done this myself. Um, it is an endlessly entertaining kind of cultural game to kind of think to oneself, Oh, you know, how about, how about Einstein? How about Newton? How about Emily Dickinson? You know, we, we like to think of all of these people with this kind of new perspective. Um, And, you know, I don't think that it is, um, you know, I, I don't think that it's a vicious thing to be doing, but, uh, it's, it's a developmental moment, uh, as with, you know, kind of the, the rise of, uh, queer studies, you know, we had a cultural moment where we were looking to reclaim characters and authors, whose, uh, sexuality might've been reduced or effaced. And, you know, I think that there's a similar kind of impulse, uh, for those who are interested in autism to kind of reclaim, uh, a history that is concealed or invisible. Uh, but it's a dangerous kind of game to play, I think. Um, and, you know, as the, as the field matures, increasingly scholars are moving away from that, uh, you know, for, for reasons that uh, soon become quite obvious. You know, one is that the category itself is very difficult, you know, for people who are dead or who are fictional. There is no way of interacting. We're not, you know, we're we're not clinicians in a one-on-one relationship with these people, um, but also that kind of marking of territory um, has an impact on the way uh, autistic people in the present day, you know, real life, autistic people get imagined and treated. Uh, So, for instance, there's been quite a lot of uh, diagnostic fervor around the character of Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, many writers have been very excited to suggest that this is an autistic character. Um, But when we do that sort of thing, we are actually bringing those expectations back to our real-life relationships with real-life autistic people, and, you know, having these bizarre expectations of um, what autism is supposed to look like, you know, as though the culture kind of has ownership uh, of defining autism. And, it, you know, it takes that power out of or it takes it takes that power away from the autistic community. So, you know, I I have really tried to steer clear of that in this book. Uh, And it's the reason why I am focusing on text and language and saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm not even necessarily saying – you know, this book is written by an autistic person or this is an autistic book. Uh, But I'm saying, you know, look at these patterns. These are, you know, this is an autistic inflection here. And if we value it here, shouldn't we value it somewhere else?
1: So actually, just to return to this question of, I suppose, Autistic characters um, versus autistic expression. And as you said, the focus of your text, the focus of your analysis is very much on this idea of autistic expression as opposed to uh, diagnosing characters or authors. And I think this brings me back to the very interesting point that you raise in chapter four and a half, where you talk about, and I really like that idea actually of a four and a half, but um, you you talk about this idea of of Herman Melville's iconic character, Bartleby. Now, while he might be read as an autistic character and certainly has been by many critics, the short story itself, Bartleby is not an autistic, uh, not an autistic text. So where exactly does this distinction come from? Uh, How exactly do we define this sort of separation between a potentially autistic character and an autistic text?
0: Um, Yeah. Uh, You know, Bartleby is, is a fascinating story and sort of a, a fascinating case in terms of literary approaches. Um, there are a lot of critics who are very attracted to that story, you know, to, to Bartleby as a potentially autistic character, and also many critics who are um, prone to read Melville himself as being an autistic writer, um, but. the the primary teller of the Bartleby story, the narrator of the Bartleby story is actually Bartleby's boss. And the the narrator is spending the whole story trying to figure out Bartleby and uh, inviting us to kind of look in on Bartleby from the outside. You know, it's quite the contrary of the the Warholian presence, which is saying, you know, it, it doesn't matter how difficult you find this, this is who I am. This is the way I am talking. You cannot change the terms of this conversation. You cannot change the nature of my rhetoric. Um, you know, I, I, I am the boss of my own language and of our conversations. So I am compelling you know readers and interlocutors and visual audiences to have a conversation on my terms to deal with these um, instances of... Repetition and to um, try to figure out my catalogic um, approach and to um, to <clears throat> to figure out their own role in um, a a rhetoric that kind of pours out um this is this is something that <clears throat> uh, the clinicians called uh you know, monologic talking, uh, but that Anthony Easton, an autistic scholar, calls info dump formalism. So it's you know when the expressor, when the writer is pouring out all of this language and the the audience or the listener or the interlocutor is. Having trouble getting a foothold in that um, in that rhetorical space, um, so quite the contrary of uh, warhol's kind of all surface very suggestively autistic use of language, a story like Bartleby is inviting. A neurotypical audience to kind of be on the side of the narrator, scrutinizing the potentially autistic character of Bartleby, saying, "You know, look, isn't isn't he queer? Isn't he strange? What is he doing now? Why is he doing that?" And you know, of course, we have to remember (spoiler alert) that that the story ends with Bartleby's death. You know, this is the ultimate way of. Um, dominating autistic forms of expression and discourse. You know, this is not an acceptable way of being in the world. This is too disruptive, too queer, too frightening. Um, And, you know, even if Melville was autistic, even if Bartleby is autistic, if we want to sort of go and allow ourselves to, to engage those ideas, the story itself um is a is a very um I mean it's a beautiful story that I, I love, but it um it absolutely engages in the kind of rhetoric that enables audiences to feel comfortable with a, a difficult figure and um a queer figure and you know, someone who doesn't have, uh, you know, doesn't use the dominant conventions of language.
1: Of course, absolutely, and I think there is a, an element or an aspect to Bartleby whereby having the story focalized through the perspective of Bartleby's boss, I suppose it encourages us as readers to other the figure of Bartleby as well to view him as something, something other, some kind of deviation. Um, And, you know, I also think um, this is, this is
0: uh, going on with a, an extremely popular autism book, uh, Mark Haddon's *The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime*, which I I don't think I address in the book, uh, but you know people love this book. You know I really enjoy it. It's a it's a well written, very engaging book, um, and it is you know widely recognized as being a book about an autistic character, but in the same way the you know there even though the the book is from the perspective of the presumably autistic narrator the the audience the reader has an extra sense beyond what the narrator is telling us. You know, we we always have knowledge that the narrator doesn't have, and so in the same way, the joke of that book is always kind of on the the character who's telling the story, and it has a a similar kind of uh, way of putting the autistic person in his place. Um, rather than, you know, fully engaging with the, the challenging language of autism.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think you can even see that to a certain degree with sort of popular cultural representations of autistic characters, even on television and in films as well. There's a sense that, you know, the audience always has this extra sense that there is this sort of Remove that, I think becomes, uh, you know, as you note there, quite problematic. So I just wanted, I think, to maybe jump back a little bit to the 19th century again and discuss your analysis of Charlotte Bronte's Villette, because you talk about that as an example of neuroqueer narration. And I'd really like to know a bit more about how Lucy Snow's narrative voice serves as a form of this neuroqueer expression.
0: I am a little bit obsessed with that book, but I have always found it very challenging. Um, and, you know, the the critical history of Villette is that, you know, readers and critics have this, you know, almost hostile relationship with the narrator who is... Uh, you know, critics talk about her being withholding and secretive um, and, you know, that the book is, you know, it has these kinds of um, long patches of uh you know, expression that kind of pours out this is the stuff that uh, we talked about before as monologism in clinical terms in the book I call this apostrophe you know I, I'm tr- I'm looking for that that poetic term. Uh, so Lucy Snow will have you know these these long patches where she just kind of bursts out with this kind of poetic, language um, where the the reader is conscious of um, not being fully in the story but just hearing her voice kind of pour out and it it has this um, you know the the reader often feels a little alienated that that we're not partners in the in the storytelling process that we're not being included um and it's one of the reasons i think that that critics keep coming back to the book uh you know sort of almost perseverate on the on the story uh but at the same time also feel uh that the book resists reading or, or resists engagement. Um, And, you know, although it's a 19th century book, you know, again, I do think that it has that kind of almost Warholian quality that she's telling her story the way she wants to tell it. And she is giving, uh, she's giving voice to, her own way of being in the world. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't necessarily follow the rules for conventional narrative engagement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do think that it's a text that certainly is, is quite difficult, but, um, I, I actually think that this sort of this project of opening texts up to the possibilities of autism, I think it really provides us with a really unique entry point to texts like this and to texts that have maybe traditionally frustrated readers and critics. And I wanted to look a bit more at this issue of um, tension between withholding or silence and the idea of a sort of more effusive expression, because you identify that as something that's quite characteristic of the the expressive style found in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as well. And in particular, you elaborate on the conventional interpretation of Victor and the creature as mirrors of each other, but you do it in a really interesting way, a really unique way, by arguing that they are engaged in a mutually reflective, communicative process, which uh, both processes are... uh, I suppose, defined by periods of silence and periods of effusive expression. Um, And I really thought this was an interesting way of looking at the two characters and looking at how they reflect one another. But could you say a bit more about how this kind of communicative process is reflective of autistic expression?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's funny. You know, the, the sort of easiest pathway into that book for thinking and talking about autism begins with... Uh, our Our sense of the creature that often comes from popular culture you know as you know a a being who is you know mute or not able to fully express himself or uh who is incapable uh of real language um and that is often kind of the stereotyped uh idea of autism that we see in popular cultures, you know, in popular culture, there are a lot of movies with non-speaking autists or, um, you know, there are a lot of representations uh, in popular culture of, you know, autistic people not being able to communicate, you know, even uh, a charitable organization like autism speaks kind of relies on this idea that autistic people can't speak for themselves or aren't users of language. And, you know, it is very interesting that in Frankenstein movies, you know, we often have a creature who's just kind of grunting or, you know, not able to use language. And, you know, obviously scholars have a different relationship with the book or even, you know, just ordinary readers of, of, the book Frankenstein will see kind of right away that the creature is tremendously eloquent and has this amazing poetic voice. Uh, But the tension between this popular representation of the creature and the reality of the creature in the book actually is grounded in Shelley's text because the creature begins as a person without language and then kind of surges into this incredible mastery of language and we see those two things at work in shelley's text in all of these different characters you know there you there is as you were mentioning this tension between silence and volubility but it works its way down you know into this sort of granular level so that you find that tension even nerd alert <laughs> even in the punctuation of the book you know so there are all of these long dashes in the book so that somebody will kind of um be talking uh rapidly urgently all the way up to uh this abrupt moment of silence. And, you know, I am pointing out that, you know, that sort of more general autism fingerprint, you know, this is, this is part of the quality of autistic expression, that it is, it is considered often to be voluble, uh, that, you know, there's this of verbalization, but it is also considered to be silent. You know, there's there the autistic person can't speak or doesn't have anything to say or can't respond or is totally non-communicative. But then autistic people are also recognized as being uh, not in control of the flow of their language. So when we see those kinds of um, tensions present in the text of Frankenstein, it's, it's a very, um, you know, it, it's a lovely little manifestation to me of the way Autism works in a in a really cherished and valued text, you know, from everything from the the components of that book, where you know, as many people know, it's you know, it's a story within a story within a story, so that the whole the whole of it is both fragmented and encased, um, and you know. Sort of everywhere we look in that book, we see uh, problems of language that bring us, you know, tremendous aesthetic interest and pleasure.
1: Absolutely. And I think it actually really highlights the complexity of autistic expression as well. It sort of negates this tendency we have as a culture to try to distill autistic expression into mere silence or the inability to control language, this sort of tension between silence and enthusiastic sort of gushing expression really highlights the complexity um, and the very, very, um, I suppose, nuanced, complex nature of autistic expression. I guess at this point, I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about the final text that you really engage with, and that's Robinson Crusoe. And In particular, I wanted to look at how you described the novel as being somewhat emotionally neutral, how it emphasises things rather than people. In what way does this aspect of the text lend itself to a reading of the novel as a work of autistic expression?
0: Um, Yeah, I think, you know, one of the fun and interesting things about Crusoe, for me as a reader, you know, before any scholarship occurs, is exactly its list-making quality. That, you know, initially when I read Crusoe, you know, probably as a teen, um, it was uh, of a kind with other, you know, science fiction and survivalist text that often included this um, list-making or inventory quality. Uh, And there was just something in me that was very drawn to that. So, you know, in narrative terms, we find a lot of cataloging uh, in Crusoe. But in terms of the actual Content of the narrative. So, if we if we move the idea of form aside and we talk about the content of the book, uh, Crusoe himself uh, spends you know enormous time and attention talking about the making of his homes and his shelters. Uh, he talks about collecting objects from the ship. He talks about tools he talks about shelves he talks about baskets he talks about crockery um he is very object focused and in a in a sense the objects that he talks about are a part of his community and um you know this way of approaching the world, the, um, the engagement of people with things, with objects rather than other people, um, is often, um, really disparaged as, um, you know, a kind of gross materialism uh it's non-spiritual it is inhumane um it's it's crass um you know it it winds up being kind of aligned with um the the pleasures of buying and consumerism um but uh, I, I am suggesting, uh, sorry. So, and, and, you know, those things are, are set up as being connected with autism so that when autistic people wind up being thing focused or object focused, or when they seem to be thing focused or object focused rather than people focused, um, this is considered to be sort of part of the clinical problem of autism that, you know, these are people who are locked away or, you know, who don't have any social sense or who don't value humanity. Um, But, you know, Crusoe also has this kind of Zen quality, um, and Virginia Woolf talks about this, not exactly in those terms, but um, she she talks about the relentlessness of Crusoe's focus on um, objects and object making and the ordering of space as um, you know washing over. The reader, until we come to a kind of place of peace with it, where we realize that there is a kind of peace and beauty to the these patterns of relationship, um, you know, and I, I, I don't want to take away from other people's critiques of Crusoe as, you know, a text of colonialism and exploitation, you know, it continues to exist that way also. Um, and I, I want to be mindful of both things, but I, I guess I want to complicate those, those readings and, you know, maybe bring it again back to Warhol where our, our relationship with objects, with lists and catalogs is perhaps more nuanced and more complicated than this uh, existing neoliberal critique would would allow.
1: Yeah, it's it certainly forces us, I think, to reconsider how we think about the process of cataloging, or as you said, how we think about the human relationship to objects and to the material things that surround us. I wanted to move on actually from here to just, I suppose, maybe approach the, um, uh, sorry, Um, I wanted to move on from here to maybe address a different issue. And that's the fact that despite the your analysis being quite comprehensive, there is generally a lack of texts by writers of color. And I was wondering, is there a particular reason that you haven't chosen to analyze many texts by writers of color?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for asking, asking this question. And I, you know, I do consider this to be a failure of the book. But, you know, I think it's a its a failure of my own scholarly orientation um, you know I wrote about the books that I couldn't stop thinking about the books that you know that I have been grappling with uh, really for decades you know most of these books I have been reading for you know twenty or thirty years at least and you know, because I kept coming back to them and um, picking at them, it's what I wanted to to ultimately include. And, you know, sort of midway through the process when I was talking over the project with colleagues, you know, I started to be really conscious of the fact that um, I, I'm not representing any writers of color. I don't think I'm addressing any writers of color uh, in my analysis. And, um, you know, it feels like a real deficit. At the same time, I I didn't want to kind of patch on uh, a, a text or a set of texts that would look at this because I feel that Uh, you know, my own engagement with those texts hasn't been as diverse and as rich. Um, And, you know, part of what I do in the book is, is I, you know, I do gesture toward these other arenas where I feel myself to be uh, less comf- less competent or less experienced. And I say, you know, I, I am sure that these resonances exist elsewhere, you know, and I do hope that others who are already expert in these fields will, will take up some of these ideas.
1: Definitely. Uh, so the Last major thing that I wanted to discuss with you is the form of the book. And I think the book has a really creative, really engaging form, just in terms of how it's structured and in terms of the language you use. And one really noticeable component of that is that the book is very much defined by all of these interjections that appear throughout the texts, words and phrases that are sort of embedded in or cut through the text. And they're often derived from other sources like books or poems or newspaper headlines. And I was just wondering, what form do these interjections take? Um, What is the purpose of these kinds of interjections? What's their function within the text?
0: Yeah, sometimes, and I'm not sure I call them this uh, in the text, but sometimes I've been referring to these as autisticisms. Um, I The book actually begins with words from Elaine C., who was a child in Kanner's uh, early landmark study, his 1943 study. Um, and if you don't mind, I actually just want to read a few of her phrases. Of course, go right ahead. So these are these are phrases that are collected in a diagnostic article or in a clinical article that, that first establishes the parameters of autism. Um, and they're intended to show the pathology of the, the person being diagnosed, but... I've taken those as the opening for the book, uh, in the hopes that I'm kind of reclaiming this buried autistic text, um, and and opening it up as uh, for poetic, you know, as an opportunity for poetic analysis and appreciation. So Elaine C says things like, "Dinosaurs don't cry." Crayfish, sharks, fish, and rocks. Crayfish and forks live in children's tummies. Butterflies live in children's stomachs and in their panties, too. Fish have sharp teeth and bite little children. There is war in the sky. So, you know, it, it goes on from there. But, you know, the idea here is that even though this is my book and my writing, I really wanted to respectfully ground it in the voices of actually autistic people. and I begin with Elaine C and then as I move through the book and look at other autistic text um, I I collect this um, uh, inventory of autistic words and phrases, that I then, uh, introduce into the, the ongoing text of the book, um, as a, as a kind of suggestive autistic commentary on, you know, whatever academic me or, you know, scholarly me is saying, um, and part of this is because I, I want us to maintain a consciousness of the real voices of real autistic people. Um, that the whole work is kind of grounded in what autistic people say and the way autistic people say things. But you know, again, it's it's intended also as a kind of, uh, you know, maybe clever little rhetorical move, uh, because it interrupts or interjects, uh, into the text, which is one of the features of autistic language that I, that I talk about. Um, Kanner talks about this as autistic ejaculation. Um, and, you know, in everyday conversation, uh, these are the autistic ways of speaking that, uh, you know, people say are, are rude or, you know, this interrupting is not a nice way of interacting with other people. Um, but I think that these bursts of language uh, are, are so valuable and so interesting and um, that they, they disrupt conversation and they disrupt uh, kind of the the solid trajectory of um conventional text in in ways that you know stop us in our tracks and and uh, compel us to reengage uh when we're kind of on autopilot
1: Yeah, I really think they actually, they serve a sort of a function of of defamiliarizing the reader or forcing the reader to step outside of the flow of logic or the flow of words. And I think that almost gets them to reconsider what they've been reading. It takes them out of the act of reading. It punctuates the act of reading and forces them to step outside of themselves, step outside of what they're doing and adopt a slightly different perspective on what they've been looking at. So I feel like it's a really appropriate form for the project that you're engaged in. But just to finish up, I want to maybe circle back around to this opening question we had about the idea of opening texts up to the possibilities of autism. And I just wanted to maybe finish up by asking how you think this process of opening texts up to autistic expression and reconfiguring autistic expression, not simply as a deviation from neurotypical expression, but rather as an authentic mode of creative expression. How might this transform the practice of literary studies in particular, and maybe how we read so-called difficult texts? I'm thinking of Villette, for example. How might this process of opening works up to the possibility of autism inform our practice as scholars or literary theorists or academics i i think you
0: know i can only speak to how i think this has influenced my own practice you know and this would be as a reader of student texts and a reader of canonical texts you know that that whole range is that Um, I, I am much more self-critical, uh, in terms of my own intuitive values. You know, if I, you know, feel resistant, if I, you know, want to, uh, reject a text or, um, if I feel, that a student is doing something incorrectly or, um, if, if I'm bored by something, um, you know, rather than, rather than thinking, Oh, you know, the student is wrong or the text is boring or this is incomprehensible. Um, I'm much more likely now to kind of, sit back and recognize how my own cultural values and context um, play into my experience of that expression. So, you know, rather than faulting the student for doing something incorrectly, I will be conscious of the fact that my inability to understand is a part of the context of the text. Um, when it comes to literary texts, I I am hoping that people will be, will give themselves more time, will be quieter, will be more patient. Um, you know, instead of, leaping to, um, you know, some kind of fixed analysis. And, I, you know, I, I realized that this is, you know, even while I'm saying it, um, this is not the way literary scholars work. You know, you read something, you have an idea about it, you read it again, you question yourself. Um, but the, this kind of practice of silence and perspective, you know, is there something else going on here? You know, if this is boring to me, uh, what is it that's making me bored? Uh, is this, is this silence, um, is something else going on in this silence or is something else happening with this repetition, repetition, you know, what attracts me to this or what makes me resist this form of expression. And I think, you know, even in our everyday interactions with one another, um, there are times when we are just, you know, very attracted to the way someone speaks or very put off by the way someone speaks. Uh, You know, we're either you know, in our everyday lives, there are times when we're very attracted to the way someone speaks or very put off by the way someone speaks. And, you know, rather than intuitively, you know, instinctively, uh, locating the, the burden of our response in the manner of the other person, um, I am thinking and hoping that we could be more curious, about forms of expression that um, feel challenging, <laughs> um, particularly forms of expression that um, where we we meet them with some resistance um, and that we would we would consider more what is happening inside ourselves that makes us resist uh or that makes us react in um in these kind of frictional you know with this kind of friction um uh when it comes to certain forms of certain forms of expression you know i'm i'm actually going to take it back to warhol again you know i i did not enjoy um his uh, philosophy of Andy Warhol. Uh, and I, I hope it's okay to say so in this public way, but you know, it was, it was a chore to read it. You know, I felt myself, you know, I, I, I had to urge myself through it. And, um, you know, I, I feel that the text is so rich and so valuable um and so interesting at the same time that it was you know it's it wasn't just that it was difficult to read i mean is it it's it's fairly accessible but in terms of the the manner of it the style of it um you know as with Vallette or for many people you know with Crusoe or with Frankenstein, um, there, there is a kind of resistance that we encounter with certain texts. And I think it will be different texts for different people. And, you know, I'm interested in those sites of resistance, exploring those sites of resistance and, you know, really considering whether the the encounter that we have is you know whether whether there is something um, underlying those those encounters uh, that you know when in fact we are reading something that seems very long and boring um, that, you know, we, we want to question our response in an almost therapeutic kind of way. Um, I have a, a friend who, um, has, is a, is a psychoanalyst. And he said that when he is talking with a patient, um, that when he finds himself getting sleepy, that's when he knows that something important is really happening, and he has to pay attention in some you know in some extra kind of way that the sleepiness is a is a kind of physical response that is trying to protect him from uh, a knowledge that is intense or or dangerous. And you know i I guess. I I would encourage all of us to bring that same kind of uh attention to literary texts, you know, when we encounter that side of resistance if we feel, you know, sleepy or angry or impatient um that there might be something really exciting and interesting and rich happening there and our our response is actually a, a kind of way of shielding ourselves from this you know new and potentially dangerous kind of reading experience does that does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely and i was really thinking that this kind of emphasis on moving beyond mainstream or neurotypical forms of expression really forces us as readers to open ourselves up to other modes of expression, other ways of articulating, other ways of understanding or being in the world. So I think it's an absolutely valuable way of approaching literary texts. So just to uh, to conclude... I think we've probably taken up enough of your time here. So just finishing up, I'd like to ask, are you working on anything new at the moment? Is there a new project that you have in the pipeline or are you continuing to work on this area? I'm just at the very beginning
0: stages of uh, possibly a new project uh, where I'm going to be integrating comics uh, and critical text So I'm, I'm thinking of, um, making a scholarly article in the form of a comic, uh, that would talk through some, um, you know, that would also kind of integrate disability theory and memoir, uh, to address the, um, you know, the, theoretical place of um, this, to address the theoretical place of this um, important person from my past uh, who is a disabled person of color. And, um, you know, it's it's a very, very difficult Subject, and you know my thought to use pictures and words is a way of making this you know very difficult uh area accessible to a wider group of readers, but also a way of kind of opening um, opening up this difficult subject matter for myself um I, i'm I'm not sure if that's too obscure,
1: not at all. It sounds like a really ambitious project and a really creative project as well so I'm hoping to to get a look at it once you've once you've completed it, but it seems like a really really fascinating integration of the visual and the Uh, literary. So that sounds absolutely incredible. And hopefully we'll hear more about it soon. So I will let you go now because I think we've detained you enough here. But I just wanted to thank you so much, Julia, for coming on the show and for talking to us about this project, because it really is an absolutely incredible Analysis. It's a really original, really engaging reading of your chosen text, and I think it opens up a really valuable and a really unique perspective on the works you've chosen to look at. So I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us today about the book. Uh, Not
0: at all, Miranda. Really, the pleasure is all mine. I'm very grateful to you for having invited me, and you know, thank you for having me on. It's it's been a great conversation, and you know, I. I am very excited to have the opportunity to talk about the book. Thank you.
1: You're most welcome. So that was Julia Miele-Rodas, author of Autistic Disturbances, Theorizing Autism Poetics from the DSM to Robinson Crusoe, and it's published by the University of Michigan Press. And I assume, Julia, that will be available on the press website? Yes, it's available through
0: the press website uh, in digital versions, paperback versions, and hardcover versions. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, there is also an accessible text available, but I need to check the name of the platform.
1: Fantastic. That's absolutely great. And again, it's a really, really engaging, really original analysis of autistic expression across a wide range of literary texts. So anyone who's at all interested in the field of disability studies or autism studies, I think this is an essential text to them. So I'd just like to say thanks again, Julia, and thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. It was really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Miranda. Okay, thank you very much. Bye.
0: Plus